Let me invite you to take God's Word, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, While you're turning there, um, I had planned on preaching through 1 Corinthians in about, or 15 in about three separate sermons, but uh, this week in study I sent Brian and Justin a text and told them that there's no way I can get through it uh, all in three sermons unless they're about four hours apiece, so... Uh, to save you all some, some much-needed time and uh, focus during service, uh, we're going to slow down a little bit and focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because it deals with one of the greatest doctrines in all of Scripture. And it is the glorious doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and what that entails, what that means for followers of Jesus Christ. So we will be in 1 Corinthians uh, all the way up until Palm Sunday. And Lord willing, we will finish up Corinthians on Palm Sunday. Uh, Then we will have our Easter celebration on Easter Sunday morning. And then we plan, Lord willing, to begin a study in the book of Ruth the Sunday after Easter. So uh, you can be reading that little four-chapter book and anticipating what God will do in our midst uh, through it. But we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning, our text is found in verses 12 through 19. Hear now the words of Scripture. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. You may have never heard of his name. His name was Henry Tandy. He was the most decorated British private soldier of World War I. His bravery and conduct earned him the Distinguished Conduct Medal, the Victoria Cross, the Military Medal, five mentions and dispatches, and three wound stripes. And yet those who are familiar with the name Tandy are familiar with his name, not because of what he did, but because of what he failed to do. During the war, during a skirmish, he found a soldier unarmed, wounded, and in retreat. Tandy had the soldier in his sights and was getting ready to pull the trigger when he noticed the soldier was wounded, unarmed, and retreating. And Tandy would not shoot an opposition soldier if they were in those situations. And so he let off the trigger and he let him go. To this day, that event remains one of the greatest what-ifs in world history because 
The wounded, unarmed, retreating soldier was a German soldier named Adolf Hitler. Tandy wonders, the world wonders, what would have happened if he had pulled the trigger and shot Adolf Hitler? Would Germany have invaded Poland and started World War II? Would the Third Reich rose in Germany? Would concentration camps be in our vocabulary? Would we think of horrors when we hear the, the, the words Dachau and Auschwitz? Would 11 million people been spared their life during World War II, during that time frame? Would 6 million Jews have been spared the gas chambers and death during World War II? If he had only pulled the trigger, what if? Later, as an old man, Tandy gave an interview to a journalist and he said, When I saw all the people and women and children he had killed and wounded, I was sorry to God that I let him go. Now, while this remains one of the greatest what-ifs in world history, it is by far, in comparison, the greatest what-if in world history. You see, the greatest what-if in world history is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is raised not by a journalist or historian, but by the Apostle Paul himself. And this what-if is this. What if there is no resurrection from the dead? You see, in Corinth, alongside other errors that had crept into the church, there was a doctrine that had slipped into the church at Corinth that denied the bodily resurrection of those who have died. And thus, Paul knows how detrimental that is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 15, as he closes out this chapter, he seeks to correct their wrong doctrinal view of the resurrection from the dead because he understands that this error, if true, crushes everything that is gospel-related. You get the sense over and over again that Paul is addressing something that is now alive and attacking the gospel in Corinth. In verse 12, he says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Tim Keller says that the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of history pivots. But ask yourself this question this morning. What if? What if when a man dies, that's it. What if when a man dies, he perishes? What if when a man dies, he vanishes, his body rots, and that's all there is to life? What if there is no hope of a future bodily resurrection? You see, the resurrection from the dead, that a man can die, that a man can be buried, and that a man can be raised again to life, is crucial and essential and fundamental to the gospel. Paul knows this. And the Corinthians haven't yet made that connection. You don't want to know why Paul begins chapter 15 with a reiteration of the gospel by proclaiming the gospel once again? Because what does the gospel include? The gospel includes the story of a man who died, who was buried, and who was raised to life again. 
And so you remove the resurrection and the gospel crumbles. And so what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15 is he, in light of this, argues based on this syllogism. Here's the syllogism he uses. It's it's going to be on the screen but not on your notes. Here's what Paul wants them to understand. First, no resurrection from the dead. That's the first line. That's their dilemma. If there is no resurrection from the dead, Christ died. And then if Christ died and there is no resurrection from the dead, therefore we conclude Christ has not been raised from the dead. You see, as gospel believers, here's what we believe. We believe that the eternal, existing Son of God, who always existed in the bosom of the Father, became a man, a human being like you and like me. He lived upon this earth. He died, was crucified, and that he was buried. And we believe that three days later, God raised him from the dead to eternal life. And that the same man who came walking out of the tomb on the first resurrection morning was the same man who was laid in the tomb three days earlier. That that was his body. That a man was resurrected from the dead. So here's what Paul's going to do. Paul now is going to say, okay, for argument's sake, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that the doubters in your midst are correct. Let's say that the heretics who have crept in amongst you are correct. Here's what I want to do. I want to present a hypothetical question to you all. What if there is no resurrection from the dead? What does it mean for the world? What would Christianity look like? What would our lives look like? What would suffering look like? What would death look like? What would the afterlife look like if there is an afterlife at all? These are questions that Paul raises in this passage of Scripture. So, what of the resurrection? Well, here's what I want us to do. First, I want us to consider a world without the resurrection. That's what Paul does in verses 12 through 19. Imagine for a moment that there is no resurrection from the dead. Imagine this morning that we don't gather together to celebrate a risen living Savior. Imagine that when Jesus died, he remained dead. And imagine that when anyone else dies, that's it for them. What does that mean? Well, Paul lists eight facts that would be true if there was indeed no resurrection from the dead. Here's the first one. Jesus is lifeless. He's dead. He is not alive. He is not well. In fact, you remove the resurrection from the dead, from the gospel, and you take away the heart of the gospel. In fact, if you go back to chapter 15, verse number 3, Paul says that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul makes no beans about it. (laughs) That Christ was raised from the dead. In fact, he had preached it to them in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if there is no resurrection, Jesus is dead. His body has rotted. There is no life in him. And he was crucified and buried. And that's it. Now, if that is true, and again, Paul's dealing with hypothetical here, then the ramifications of that are far-reaching. Because if Jesus is lifeless, Paul says preaching is useless. Look in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. The word vain there means it's without purpose. It is without benefit. Paul said, I proclaim to you. It's been proclaimed among you that Christ has been raised from the dead. In chapter 15, verse 1, he said that he had preached the gospel to them. They had received it. They had believed it. What good is preaching if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? You know, the word gospel means good news. And when we preach, we proclaim the good news. But if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, there is no good news to tell. You talk about fake news. <laughs> it would be the fakest of all fake news. If I proclaim Jesus to be resurrected from the dead, if there is no resurrection from the dead. Beloved, I might as well tell you about how the Easter Bunny killed Rudolph on the way to the Emerald City as to proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ if the dead has not been raised. This is a useless act. If there is no resurrection. But not only is preaching useless, faith is worthless. Paul goes ahead in verse 13 or verse 14 and he says, And our preaching is vain, and your faith is in vain. Do you know your faith is only as strong as the object in which you place it in? It is better to have a weak faith in a great object than to have a great faith in a bad object. And for Christianity, for believers, we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected, and that he's alive now. And thus, the weakest of weak faith is saving faith, not because of how great our faith is, but because of the one in whom our faith has been placed. And thus, we are saved because of that. But what if he is dead? Faith in a dead martyr is dead faith. And there is no saving virtue in that. We are not then justified by faith alone because we can't be justified. And no matter how strongly you believe, that faith is not good enough to save you before God if Jesus did not, was not raised from the dead. And if our faith is worthless, Paul wants us to know, our witness is pointless. Look in verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now Paul's moving from the mental aspect of it to the moral aspect of it. And here's what he's saying. We're everyone a bunch of liars. That's exactly what we are when we share the gospel if the dead have not been raised, and we've made two major mistakes. And here's what we've done. First, he says, we're guilty of spreading a lie about God. We go around telling 
that God sent his own son. He died. He was buried. And God raised him again from the dead on the third day. If the dead don't raise, then we're lying about God. We are lying about what God did. We're saying he did something he did not do. And thus, we're guilty of blaspheming God. You know, it's the greatest of all blasphemies to say God did something that he didn't do. And so Paul says, I've been telling everybody, you've been telling everybody that God raised his son from the dead. But if there's no resurrection from the dead, we're a bunch of blasphemers that we are saying God did something he did not do if it is true that the dead do not raise. What's the use of witnessing them? What's the use of sharing the gospel then with someone else? Basically what you're doing is you're, you're one dead person sharing a dead message with another dead person and there's no hope of life. Witnessing is pointless. Forgiveness is hopeless. Look in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. No resurrection means no forgiveness. Now imagine that for just a moment. All the sins of your past, the weight, the burden, the shame, the guilt, the penalty that you thought was gone because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Those sins now creep back into the picture. And the chain of condemnation which once held you down and bogged you down is back again. And you find yourself a prisoner once again to your sin and your past and your guilt and your transgressions. All of that is back because no resurrection means you cannot be forgiven of your sins. The Bible says Jesus was delivered up for our offenses, but he was raised again for our justification. Meaning what? Meaning that when he died, he died on the cross as a substitute for us because of our sins. But when he was raised again the third day from the grave, that was God's way of saying to the Son that he had accepted what he had offered on the cross. That what Christ had offered on the cross was sufficient to save his people from their sins. It was sufficient to be able to forgive sinners. If Jesus had remained in the tomb, that would have been God's way of saying, it's not good enough. The payment has not been made. Mankind is still left in their sins and there is no hope of being forgiven. What would a world look like with no hope of forgiveness. And we all pack the weight and the guilt and the shame of our sins. Well, that's what a world without the resurrection would look like. And then he says suffering would be meaningless. Jump down to verse 32, what Paul says. Paul says, what do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with the beast at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying, listen, I've suffered. I've fought with beasts. There's, there's debate whether he's, he's speaking metaphorically here about people or if he really had a run-in or two with some beasts at Ephesus. But another passage, he speaks of being beaten uh, 49, 39 times on three separate occasions. He speaks of being shipwrecked. He speaks of being hated. He speaks of being abused. He speaks of all of those things. And here's what he's saying. Why in the world would I do that? If there is no resurrection from the dead. If there's no resurrection in the dead, 
then there's no point to anything that I have suffered for the cause of Christ. Let's just eat, drink, be merry, and die and rot like everything else. If the dead rise not, every martyr who's ever given their life for the cause of Christ has died in vain. Every person who has ever suffered for the gospel has suffered in vain. Every believer who has ever suffered physically, be it from a disease, has has really suffered with a false hope if there is no resurrection from the dead. Suffering is meaningless. Dead believers are helpless. Look what Paul says in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Do you know what that means? That means that those who have died trusting in Christ are now rotting in their graves. That's the only future that they have, and that's the only hope any of us have. Beloved, you take the resurrection away from us, and there's nothing else that we have. I can't count the numbers that I have, the times that I have stood behind a casket and told Family members time and time and time again that the loved one, the shell of the loved one that they see before them, they're no longer suffering. They're no longer in pain. They're no longer hurting. That now they are rejoicing in the presence of God and they will receive a new resurrected body when Christ returns. And you know, as a preacher in those times, that's the only comfort that I can offer the family. That's the only hope that I can offer the family is when they come up to look into the casket for the final time is to be able to say to them, this is not the end. Because Christ lives, they too will live, and you will live, and you will see them again. But you remove the resurrection. You take the resurrection away from the gospel. Then every time I've said that, I'm a dirty, rotten liar. (laughs) And I am Cruel, because I have given hope through the gospel to people who have no hope if the resurrection is not true. Do you know what I ought to say if there is no resurrection? I ought to say what Paul says. Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're going to die too. I ought to look at them and say, your loved one has perished. This is the final time you will ever see them. Their future is to rot in the grave. And their best days have been lived out. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. You see now how the resurrection is not just some theological discussion that takes place, but it's very practical. It hits us right where we live. And so those who have died, if there is no resurrection, they have perished. There's no hope for them. And then eighthly, he says, Christianity is senseless. Verse 19 If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He was saying, you remove the resurrection and you know what you do to the gospel? You know what you do to our hope? You confine it to this world. You confine it to this age. You confine it to what you can see and feel and touch and hear. You confine it to this sin-cursed world. And what hope is there to be found in this sin-cursed world? What hope is there to be found when you look at the news and you look at the world and you look at what's going on? Is there any hope to be found here? No. And so Paul says, here's how the world should look at us. If there is no resurrection, 
and we only have hope in this world in Christ, the world really ought to feel sorry for us. The world really ought to pity us. The world should really look at us as if we are the biggest fools on the planet. Now, the world already looks at us as if we're the biggest fools on the planet right now with a heavenly hope. How much more so should they do so if we don't have a heavenly hope? They're wrong now, but they would be correct if there was no resurrection from the dead. You see, Christianity would make no sense. It would be no different than any other religion of the world in which people are following now a dead leader. And so Paul says, here it is. Here's what the world without the resurrection would look like. What's my favorite word in the Bible? But. All right. Paul gets us to the point of major spiritual depression. We're almost to the point where we want to throw up our hands and say, what's the use? We are pitiful people. Let's just eat and drink. Tomorrow we die and let's go on with it. But that that word shows up in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul says, listen. We don't have to deal with hypotheticals. We don't have to think about what the world would be like without the resurrection from the dead because we know it is a fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. And so today, beloved, we sing about a living Savior. We preach about a living Savior. We read about a living Savior. We testify about a living Savior. And today, we have assurance that Jesus is indeed alive and well. Now, here's what I want to do. I know that in verse 20, Paul uses the but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead to launch forward in his argument. But I want to work backwards. I want to take the first part of verse 20. Then I want us to go back to verse 12. And I want us to consider the implications of the resurrection. Because here's the deal. When Paul's being hypothetical... And he says, this is true if there is no resurrection. I think it's just common sense that we can go back to that and say, but because there is a resurrection, this is true. Okay, so I'm going to give you eight gospel facts that are true because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Again, these are not hypotheticals. These are facts from God's word based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The first is this. Jesus is alive. <laughs> that is good news. Jesus, was, he was crucified. He was buried. He was placed in a tomb. And three days later, he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And listen, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead. We'll see next week to start that new humanity, that new people of God who would, who would be right with God, who, who could stand before God without sin, without blame, and righteous before him. But have you ever considered this? That right now, in heaven, sitting on the right hand of the Father, is a man. A human being. A man. Not some angelic being. Not some spiritual being. But a man. Jesus, when he came to this earth in the incarnation, the glory of it, one of the glories of it, was that he would forever, forever, 
assume humanity on Himself. And thus when He was raised from the dead, He was that second Adam who from Him a new humanity that would honor God, that would be God's children, would be formed. And a man sits in heaven today. That blows my mind. I I can't wrap my mind around it, but what an encouragement to know that when we pray to Jesus, beloved, we're praying to a man. We're praying to someone who has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We're praying to someone who's walked the sandy slopes of this earth. We're praying to someone who's felt burdens, cried tears, and who knows what we are going through. He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And he is alive. And thus, if Jesus is alive, preaching's useful. It's useful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God calls sinners to life. He gives life to dead hearts through the proclamation of His Word. So, why should preaching be prominent in our church services? Why should preaching have the central focus of all worship? It's because God does something through the preaching of His Word. The Spirit gives life. He calls life to come from dead hearts through the proclamation of His Word. Preach the Word, He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1. It's useful. This is not just some religious activity that we go through. God works through the proclamation of His Word. And because preaching is useful, faith is valuable. Faith is valuable. Do you know what the Bible says? Therefore, being justified how? By faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This means that now a person can be right with God, not based on their deeds, Not based on their works, not based on what they have done or what they have not done. But a person now can stand before God, right, acceptable, and and welcomed by God by placing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, faith in a living object is a living faith. And again... A weak faith in Jesus is greater than a strong faith in anything else. It is not the degree of our faith that saves us. It's the existence of faith that saves us. When we hear the gospel and God grants faith and repentance to a person's heart, that's what saves. And so faith is valuable. We are justified by faith alone. And then witnessing is profitable. That means that when we tell people, That God raised Jesus from the dead. We're not lying. We're telling the truth. That God raised his son from the dead. And we can tell it to our neighbors. We can tell it to the nations. We can tell it locally. And we can share it globally. Because we are declaring what God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not blaspheming. We're actually bringing honor and glory and praise to the name of God. And so witness the gospel. And fifthly, forgiveness then is available. Listen, 
because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem, I can tell any sinner anywhere, regardless of the sin they have committed, regardless of what they have done, regardless of the shame that they pack, regardless of the guilt that they carry, that they can be forgiven of their sins. And not only forgiven of their sins, the burden can be lifted. The penalty can be paid. The guilt and the shame can be gone. What a joy to be able to look at transgressors and to be able to say, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And what a joy for the saints to be able to sing of the glorious forgiveness of God that He has forgiven us of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And that in Christ we have the forgiveness of our sins and we have made peace through the blood of his cross. Let me ask you something. Have you asked God for forgiveness? Have you sinned against God? Do you know that the penalty of that sin is death? That you're a lawbreaker in heaven's courts? And that your only hope of forgiveness is a resurrected Savior who can forgive you of all of your sins and all of your shortcomings and all of your trespasses if you will ask him to do so. Sixthly, suffering then is endurable. Paul asked, why would I fight with the beast of Ephesus? Why would I endure what I endure if there is no resurrection from the dead? Do you know, hope as Stephen King says in his novel, is a good thing. It is the best of things. And in the gospel, the gospel hope that we have endures beyond this life. And you know what I've seen it do? I've seen it anchor people in the midst of earthly torments. I've seen it anchor people in the midst of suffering. I've seen it anchor people in the midst of times when everyone around them scratched their heads and wonder, how can they endure this? You know how they endure it? Because the gospel gives us hope that goes beyond this veil of mortal kin. Do you know how a family can gather around and treat someone with Alzheimer's who's lost their mind and can't even remember their children's names for months and years at a time? Here's how. They know that Jesus was resurrected. And that because Jesus resurrected, that saint who trusted in Jesus has a new body with a new mind awaiting them. And they will be known even as they are known in that day. That's how the gospel anchors us and gives us strength to be able to endure. How is it that a family can care for a loved one whose body is being racked with cancer to the point that they are merely skin on bones and they no longer look like themselves. How can they look at that with hope? They can look at that with hope because they're looking beyond this life. They're looking to the world to come where God promises a resurrection and a new glorified body for his children. How is it? That someone who has suffered a debilitating pain throughout all of their life. Pain that we could not even imagine. How is it that they can do so in hope? Oh, it's because their hope is not in what the FDA approves. It's not in some medicine that can take away that pain. Their ultimate hope is in the fact 
that there is coming a day when they will be resurrected from the dead in a new body. And in that new body, pain will be a foreigner and it will not be welcome. And we will know what pain is no longer. How is it that in this life, in the midst of our heartaches, in the midst of our tears, how is it that we endure hardships? What is it that anchors us when salty tears plow furrows down our cheeks? What is it that holds us when grief is more than we can possibly bear? What is it that holds us? Where does our hope come from? Our hope comes from the fact that there is coming a day when a new heaven and a new earth will descend down as a bride adorned for her husband and there will be no more sickness nor sorrow nor pain. Neither shall there be any more things for the former things will pass away and God himself will wipe away all tears from the eyes of his children. That is our hope and it goes beyond this world. Beloved, we can endure it for a little while here. Because we've got eternity to enjoy Christ forever. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not at the things that are seen, but of the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal. They're transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Did you hear what Paul said there? Paul said that our light momentary afflictions are doing something. They're working for us. They are working for us to provide a greater weight of eternal glory that we will experience on that day. But in order to appreciate it now, you have to get your eyes off of what you see and focus them on what you do not see. And the only way we can focus on what we do not see in the midst of suffering is if indeed Christ has been raised from the dead and he has been. And if this is true, then seventhly we see that death is not final. Death is not the end. Death is a comma for the child of God, not a period or an exclamation point. Instead of perishing, those of our loved ones who have already outstripped us and gone, those of our loved ones who have already passed through this sin-cursed world, they are not asleep in the grave. They are presently in the presence of God, rejoicing and enjoying His presence. But yet, their bodies are in the grave. And sure, sure, their bodies may rot. Their bodies may decay. But that's okay. Because from those plots, from those cemeteries, from those <laughs> the, the graves... God will make a new body and will raise a new body up from that very same place. And they will be raised in power and in victory. You know, Brother James always said that when the Lord comes, he would like to be plowing the cemetery. I thought, you know, that would be great. What a, what a thought that would be to see God's people raised from the dead. Beloved, those who have died trusting Christ they died in hope, and they too will be resurrected one day. And therefore, we conclude with this eighth fact. 
that Christianity is reliable. Remember what Paul said in verse 19? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That means Christianity is senseless if there is no resurrection. But because there is a resurrection, because it's a fact, Christianity now is divided from every other world religion. The only one who claims that God became a man, that he died and he was buried, resurrected, and now he's alive forevermore. And that he is the only way to the Father. And this is where we're brought to a crossroads, beloved. Because the hinge of the resurrection is the hinge upon which the gospel door swings. Take it off and the door falls. Remove the resurrection, the gospel crumbles. Remove the resurrection, hope disappears. Remove the resurrection and sin reappears. Remove the resurrection and Jesus is not Lord. C.S. Lewis says, there's only one of two things you can make out of Jesus. That is one, he is who he said he was. That is, he's the Lord. He is God. Or, He's a liar or he's a lunatic. One of those three things. I mean, either either he's Lord, he is who he said he was, or he's just a liar, somebody who was out to get a following. Or he really believed he was who he said he was and he wasn't. He was some sad, demented, crazy lunatic. Do you know what tells the difference in who he really is? the resurrection from the dead if he was not resurrected he doesn't deserve our life our faith our trust our allegiance but if he was resurrected from the dead he deserves our life and our all you know you can't be saved apart from believing that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead it's a must it's a non-negotiable Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 8 and 9, when he's talking about the word of faith being near you, here's what he says. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and watch this, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Do you hear what you said? You have to confess Jesus with your mouth. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So if the resurrection is essential to the gospel. And if the resurrection is essential to personal salvation. Then the most important question any of us will ever answer in our life is this. Do I believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day after he died?